The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin, we need to take a few moments... Silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship. Use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. When we confess our sins, God instantly forgives and forgets the sin. We don't have to impress Him with our sincerity or emotion or anything else. God instantly forgives us so we can move forward. We, are, we recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, and we are restored to fellowship so that we can continue to learn doctrine. And it's the Holy Spirit who teaches us and who makes it understandable to us He's the one who stores it in our soul and recalls it to our memory for application. It's up to us to make the choice to apply it. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to fellowship around the teaching of your word, because your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is your word that is absolute truth and the means by which we learn so that we can apply it and be sanctified. Now, Father, we pray that we would be responsive to what we learn today. Help us to assimilate it into our own thinking. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I always hate this. I forgot to go over a couple of announcements that I want to emphasize. A couple of things. First of all, next month you're going to have to demonstrate some flexibility. We're going to have a special event next month with uh, R.A. Williams is going to be here, and and Dr. Williams is uh, pastor of a church. He's black. He's pastor of a black church in South Central L.A. He's been very gracious to me. Many times having me out to speak at his church. You're going to love him. He has a fantastic sense of humor. And he is going to be here on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday night. The dates are 15th, 16th, and 17th, not the 18th. I think I inadvertently put that in because that's when he's leaving and I was trying to nail down other things as well like reservations, etc. But uh, he will be here. We will have child care every night. We will have something for the children every night. And I would appreciate it if everyone would show up every night and really support this. He is, uh, this is a tremendous privilege that we have, and it's going to have a lot of different ramifications. So um, I'm glad that RA is going to be out here. Also, there's going to be a slight change in the schedule, as you notice in your calendars, for the Wednesday night prayer meeting. We've had to flex things around a little bit in the past, but the last two weeks, the 21st and 28th of August, we will have our midweek prayer meeting and Bible class on Tuesday night. On Tuesday night, I have to go out of town for some different functions those two weeks, and there just isn't any way I can get some place for a Thursday morning when I have Bible class so far out on the edge of the East Coast on Wednesday night, so I appreciate your flexibility on that. So we'll just uh, just keep those things in mind. 
Well, with that, let's open our Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, and this section is the section that deals with the purposes for why John is writing. And he divides the congregation up into three groups. He calls them all as a whole little children. Little children in the Greek is technion, and we find that in verse 12 and again in verse 28. So what we see here is that there is a clear demarcation in the text when he changes a subject and when he is stating something. We find that he uses that same phraseology back in 2.1, my little children. So this marks a break in his, in his thinking as he transitions from one subject to the next. The other times that you have children mentioned in this section, in verse 13 and again in verse 18 in the English, it is not children in the English, it is paideon. There's a difference between a paideon and a technion. A technion is, can refer to a child of any age. And it was used as a term of endearment, meaning just little children, as Elderly John, by this time, looks upon the congregation as his spiritual children. But paideon refers to an infant. It is a Greek word referring to a small child, not just a child of any age, but a small child. And so it is used in conjunction with two other words to indicate different spiritual ages. So he looks at the spiritual life as being comprised of three stages, that of being a a little child, an adolescent, and an adult. So they are referred to under the three terms fathers, young men, and children. And we see this introduced in verse 13. He begins in verse 12, as I stated last time, emphasizing the motivation for one and all. This is what's to drive us in the spiritual life. People, are, people so often are motivated to go to church for all kinds of reasons, and unfortunately, so many churches... Uh, adopt any means they, they can to motivate people. They operate on an... Isn't it amazing how many churches that ought to be standing for absolutes operate on an end justifies the means methodology when it comes to evangelism or getting people to church? doesn't matter what we do. We'll have some children's program. We'll have uh, uh, Christmas programs. We will have... Um, Cover dish dinners, we will have Saturday night suppers, we'll have concerts, we'll just do anything in the world to try to get people through the front door, and then, then they come up with a bait and switch tactic. You know, now that we've gotten you here for one reason, we're going to switch and try to teach you the Bible. You know, it never works. Sooner or later, you always have problems. You either end up watering down your Bible teaching to get people the people who have come now to keep, get them to stay, or you end up having some kind of split in the congregation. This happened at the first church I pastored. When I came, there was a dearth of people under the age of 50. Should have taken note, the older generation didn't want to relinquish any authority or power. They, they wanted me to be Robert Schuler. That'll never happen, and it never happened. But what happened was, as a result of teaching the Word, the church grew. Two years went by, and about 20 or 30 younger adults in their 20s and 30s had started coming to the congregation. Well, gosh, they wanted Bible study. But the older crowd wanted somebody to make them feel good. And wouldn't you know it, the church blew up and split in three different directions. And that often happens, because people who want doctrine are always going to be reacted against by the people who want programs. And programs never did anything to mature anybody. It's always the teaching of the Word of God. So we don't try to motivate people here by anything other than the teaching of the Word of God. Those who hear the Word of God and want to know what God has to say will be motivated by the Word. Those who want something else, who want some kind of personal attention or who want uh, some kind of special uh, thing for the children or just want entertainment or uh, special music programs find, usually find their way to some other congregation where they're not challenged by the truth of God's Word. But here we focus on... And it's not like that some of those things are inherently wrong. I mean, we love good music and we love, would love a good music program and appreciate talent, but that's not why you go to church. In fact, that's one thing that I've thought about over the years 
I had a I had a choir in a church once, and um, I've often thought that the reason some people go to churches that have great choirs is because they're interested in music, and so they end up getting in the choir. And it happens with other programs too. I'm not I'm not picking on music and picking on choirs. What happens is before long you get people who are coming to your church for those other reasons. That's their priority. They're not there to learn doctrine. They're there because it gives them an opportunity to sing. It gives them an opportunity to do something that they're interested in. And first thing you know, as soon as some problem comes up, what happens? There's a split. Because the crowd that's there for the youth program, the crowd that's there for the entertainment, the crowd that's there for the music, starts running afoul of the folks that are there who want to learn the Word and who are really advancing to maturity. So we always have to be careful with the things that we do and to avoid running into the trap of, causing, of having things that, that become false motivations for people to come to church. The motivation is grace and our response to grace. That's why Paul emphasizes that in verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, the whole congregation, because your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. Literally, your sin, because, or for your sins are forgiven you because of His character. And that is a response to God's grace. We understand God's grace, and we respond to it. And the more you grow and advance as a believer, the more gratitude there should be. Because as we study doctrine and get into the Word more and more, we should realize how undeserving we are, how how sinful we are, how rebellious we have been, as not only individually but as, a, as a, the human race, and how tremendous God's grace is that He even allows us to take our next breath. And so the more we understand doctrine, the more of a response there should be in gratitude. And that should then ricochet through every area of our life in terms of all of the ministries of our priesthood. See, the function of our priesthood is motivated by grace. What are the functions of our priesthood? Giving, prayer, witnessing. All of that has to do with the function of our priesthood. And we're motivated to give, we're motivated to witness, and we're motivated to to serve one another, all because we understand the grace of God and we understand what He has done for us, and so we are responding to that. So that's why John begins with just setting up everything in verse 12. Then he begins to single out each individual group in verse 13, and this sort of sets the outline of what will then follow in verse 14. Verse 13 reads, I am writing to you, fathers, patera in the Greek, I am writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know him who was from the beginning... I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. Now, I want you to notice. Let's go on and read verse 14 before we come back and begin to discuss what's going on in verse 13. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who was from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. And then it doesn't mention children again until verse 18. So 14b through 17 is, is going to be addressed to the young man. Now, just so you understand the structure, in verse 13, he addresses fathers because you know him. In verse 14, fathers because you know him. He does, him who has been from the beginning. He doesn't add anything to that. It's the same in both verses. He has nothing new to say to the mature believer because the mature believer and the congregation is not having a problem with the false teaching of, the, uh, of this early Gnostic type of teaching that was there. They're not having a problem with licentiousness. The, the mature believers have, are doctrinally squared away, and they're applying the doctrine they know. So he doesn't repeat anything to them. The second category, though, has some problems. These are the young men, the adolescent believers. The summary issue is given in verse 13. Because you have overcome the evil one. The evil one is another title for Satan, for the devil, for Lucifer, as he was called before the fall, who goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. They have overcome the evil one. Well, what does that mean? We're going to have to answer that. And he's going to explain it 
particularly in terms of the cosmic system, starting in verse 15, where he says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So to understand the phrase in 13b, we're going to have to look at verses 15 through 17 and what he says in his address to the uh, adolescent believer at that point. And then at the end, he says, uh, I have written to you children because you have come to know the Father. And then he is going to expand that in about 11 verses or 10 verses, starting from verse 18 down through verse 27. So that's going to be somewhat of an expansion of the, what it means, means that they have come to know the Father. Now, last time, and by way of introduction to this, I talked about, first of all, the motivation, that our motivation is gratitude. And gratitude is a measure. We can look at our gratitude. We're to give thanks in all things and for everything. We're to give thanks to the Lord. So how thankful we are in the midst of trials, difficulties, testing, we are to let that be a barometer, personal evaluation tool, to find out just how grace-oriented we are, because grace orientation is foundational to everything else. We move from the motivation to talk about the fact that there are spiritual skills in the Christian life. And I put this chart up on the overhead. We're going to try to find a way to uh, print this out so everybody can have a copy of this. But this is just to help organize these uh, spiritual skills so that we can uh, understand the, their relationship to one another in the Christian life. Okay. We have our three divisions right here. The lower level is spiritual childhood. Technon, or technion as it is here, little children. Spiritual adolescence, neoniscoi. And then the upper level, spiritual adults. The adult sons mentioned here and as well as in Romans 8.14. And John 18 uses the term, these are the ones who produce uh, much fruit. That's the ultimate goal in the Christian life, the maximum glorification of God. That helps you understand, orient to the, what this chart's talking about. Now, we'll take some time to go through all the details of this chart, so I'm not going to just hit it and run through it real fast and, and leave you wondering what in the world that was all about. John here starts at the upper level. He starts with the mature believer. Now here, I've talked about these as spiritual skills, and I want to review for you the, what a spiritual skill is. Remember, a skill is an, is an acquired ability in a specific activity. It's an acquired ability. That means we learn it, we practice it. It takes time to develop, just like with any detail in life, whether it's, whether it's a musical talent, whether it's a physical talent, physical skill, whether it has to do with carpentry, whether it has to do with art, music, athletics, whatever it is, it's something that we acquire and it takes time and it takes practice. We develop proficiency and facility with it only through experience. That means we have to practice it. Every single time we have an opportunity to use any of these spiritual skills, we need to do so. It drills it into us so that when the time comes and the difficult challenges come, then that is our automatic reflex. It takes a lot of time to develop that. Spiritual maturity does not occur overnight. Spiritual maturity is not simply the result of knowing doctrine. It is the result of knowing doctrine as epinosis doctrine, detailed doctrine, in the soul and practicing it again and again and again and again. It's not simply a matter of academic understanding. Now, as we go through this, we look at, we're just going to look at the upper level. The upper level is really composed, uh, it's composed of four separate skills, but the first three are interrelated and interconnected. They all have to do with love for God and love for man. Remember, Jesus said it when asked what the greatest commandment was, that the greatest commandment was love the Father with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So it summarized these two things, love for one another, love for, love for God, and love for one another. So the first is personal love for God. Personal love for God the Father. The more we have mastered the basic, basic skills 
confession, filling of the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit, faith, rest, drill, grace orientation, and doctrine orientation. The more we master those, the more we understand all that God has done for us. That's what grace orientation and doctrinal orientation work together. We understand more of what God has done for us, and that motivates us to truly love God. This isn't that kind of sentimental, emotional love that most people talk about in most churches where we just have a feel, emotional feel-good and warm fuzzy because isn't God wonderful? And then we all go home and get involved working in our gardens or going to the races in the afternoon and forget about God. That's what happens when you emphasize emotion. This has to do with a deep, profound understanding of everything that God has done for us in salvation, of the 40 things that God has provided for us, all of the spiritual assets that He has given us, and how to use them. We come to know God. We know who. We move from just knowing who He is. See, at the end of the verse, notice it says uh, John says that He is written to the children because they have come to know the Father. See, that's just to know basic essence of God. I, I learned the essence box back when I was probably six or seven years of age, and been able to think my way through the basic doctrines like the Trinity and the essence of God since I was at least a teenager. But that's just basic stuff. That is foundational stuff to be able to articulate the attributes of God, the essence of God, and understand the Trinity. That's, what, that's a building block. And that's just part of understanding doctrinal orientation. But we have to understand that so we come to love God. And because we love God and that provides the motivation for us, we are then able, we understand grace. Grace is the foundation for love for one another. Jesus said that we are to love one another as I have loved you, he said. As he loves us, that's unconditional. It is not selfish. It is a love that is not based on who and what the object is, but a love that is based on the character of God and what is best for the individual. It implies a knowledge, an objective knowledge of what's best for somebody. So we can't love somebody with an unconditional or impersonal love unless we're motivated by a true understanding of God and a love for God. That is our motivation. And then the third step in this, this what I call the love triplex here, is occupation with Christ. And that's really what we're going to spend some time talking on because that once you establish the, this in your soul, where you really come to understand who and what God is, that motivates you to a consistent love for all mankind based on Christ's love, and you're focused on Christ, then that last stage, which is inner happiness, James 1-2, it's that last stage that begins to fall into place. Inner happiness is not something you actively do like, I'm going to be happy now. But it is the consequence of mastering these other skills. That's why James starts off in 1-2. We spent uh, a whole year cranking our way through the epistle of James. And in that, I said again and again, James started off with the priority mandate. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And the rest of that epistle is designed to bring them to the point where they can do that. That was He doesn't give it. We would think in our Western mindset, we would think, okay, start off in, with the first verse and start beginning to build it step by step. And then the last thing in the, in the book is the final result of the process. He starts off with the final result of the process and then tells you how to get there. And throughout James... There's the emphasis on, we saw how all of these different spiritual skills are developed and are applied in the believer's life. And the result is joy. Jesus said, my joy I give to you. And we know that that's a joy that is not based on circumstances. It's not based on people. It's not based on our own emotions. It is a joy based on an understanding of God's plan and purposes for our life, an understanding of doctrine so that when things happen around us, no matter how horrible, no matter how unexpected, no matter how difficult, no matter how heart-wrenching they might be, we can have an inner stability. We can have tranquility and contentment with or without 
that's why Paul is able to say in Philippians chapter 4, I have both abounded and abased. I've had nothing, I've had a lot. And then he said, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, too often we go in there and we take uh, Philippians 4.16 out of context. And we say, oh, well, I can do anything through Christ. And we just limit it that way. But we have to understand it in context. In context, Paul has just talked about the fact that he's gone through poverty tests. He has gone through uh, prosperity tests. He has had opportunities where he's had lots of friends around him and... and, uh, been in, with Christian fellowship. He's had times when he's isolated in prison. He's had time, good times. He's had bad times. He's had times of good health, bad health. He's been beaten numerous times. He's been in jail. He's been left for dead. But he says, I can do all things. Now, the all things there relates to all of those circumstances, whether they are positive or negative, prosperity or adversity. Paul says, I can handle any situation this world throws at me. Because of Christ. Because I am so focused on Jesus Christ and what He did for me that I can handle anything. And that's occupation with Christ. That is Paul's understanding of occupation with his expression of occupation with Christ and his expression of his contentment, his tranquility, and his inner happiness as a result of his relationship with Jesus Christ. So this is the stage that we're shooting for in the Christian life for Christian maturity. So John starts there. He says, I am writing to you. And this is an an heuristic present tense. He's writing at that particular moment back in probably somewhere around 90 A.D. He's writing to the congregation. He's writing to you. Fathers, He's going to express the purpose for writing to the mature believers, the patera. And he says, because you know him. I am writing to you, fathers, because. And here he uses a causal hati, which is a, to explain his reason for writing. Because you know him. And there we have, again, the perfect uh, active indicative of gnosko. And that means that they have come to know Him, and there the knowledge has to do with relationship. It's not just academic knowledge. There's all kinds of people who have just academic knowledge about God. They've read all kinds of books. Maybe they've even gone through seminary, and yet they may not even be saved. I remember in my first church, there was somebody at a uh, another church where you would have expected that they understood the gospel, and uh, about three years into his pastorate, he claimed that he trusted Christ as his Savior and finally got saved. Well, I don't know if that's true or not, but if it is, I'm, at least we're glad he got saved. But some people uh, don't always understand the gospel uh, right away. And um, it's not just academic knowledge. You get um, Some of you know this because of past training, but one of the best tools you can use in Greek is a work called the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. It's a big ten-volume work edited by a German uh, named Gerhard Kittel. Now, most it was originally written in German, and most of the authors of all these articles on all these Greek words are, uh, are, are, are European. They are liberal theologians. The theology throughout most of that book, which we usually refer to as Kittel, is horrible. And if you don't have some discernment when you read that, you're going to come up with all kinds of really crazy ideas. And that's why it's very dangerous for a lot of people to get their hands on it. Now, in this era we're living in with uh, modern technology and computers, there, this is available on computer program. And I've seen all kinds of people who have more money than sense run out and get a copy of this on their computer, and they're just going to be dangerous. You know, we have too much information today. Information isn't knowledge and knowledge isn't wisdom. That only comes through training and uh, through practice and application. And so what happens is people look at this and they jump all, jump. They just have academic knowledge. But this is not academic knowledge. This is a knowledge based on the fact that these believers have spent years studying doctrine and building a relationship with God, and they know Him and they understand Him. Now, it says in the text, because you know 
him. And there we have a third person singular relative pronoun. You don't actually have the, the uh, pronoun there. All you have is the relative pronoun, which uh, sets up a relative phrase that uh, is literally translated, the one who was from, who, was, who has been from the beginning, the one who has been, apo, from the ultimate source of our case, the beginning. Because you have come to know the one who has been from the beginning. Now, the question you have to ask yourself, is he talking about God the Father or God the Son? Now, remember, there's been a lot of emphasis in the passage. Uh, there's been some emphasis in the passage on God the Father. But here, I think two things play into our understanding that that he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, he's going to mention the Father specifically at the end of the verse, that the little children, they have come to know the Father. It's not going to be a repetition. Secondly, there is an issue facing the congregation that has to do with a false understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And that was we went through that at the beginning. In the fourth, first four verses, John says that we are uh, explaining to you the message of life, that is, starting in verse 3, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also that you may have fellowship with us. In other words, if you don't have a proper understanding of who Jesus Christ is in his person, as hypostatic union, undiminished deity, and true humanity, then you don't have a true understanding of who Jesus is. And all kinds of people are running around today uh, wearing their uh, little witness wear and their little bracelets that you know, have WWJD on it, what would Jesus do? But they don't know Jesus. You know, just take for an example here. I might be in some situation, and uh, I might be sitting down. I say, oh, I've got to work on my house. What would Ken do? Well, I know Ken pretty well. He's worked, done work around the house and everything, but I'm not sure I know enough to be able to answer that question because I haven't known him that long and I haven't worked with him side by side, day in, day out, on some situ- on uh, construction projects. You see, it takes time to really time with somebody. You really have to know someone well before you can answer the question, "What would they do?" But yet, everybody who has a Bible and has had a religious experience and has gone to Sunday school more than three times, thinks they can tell you what Jesus would do in any given situation. What happens is that they generate, out of the idolatry of their own soul, some image of what Jesus was like. And then they worship that image. It's nothing more than idolatry. But that's not what happens here. They've had, these people have had time. They've learned doctrine. They have been taught from the apostles, from many. By this time, it's roughly 90 A.D. We could say that there were men in this congregation in Ephesus that were taught by Paul, that were taught by Timothy, that have now been taught by the apostle John, who was with the Lord. They had a sound understanding that some of these uh, more mature believers had probably been Christians for years, maybe even two or three decades. And they had a very solid understanding of the Lord, who He was, what He was, and they had a clear understanding of His mission and of what He accomplished. They had come to know Him. So I think that the first phrase here, because you know Him who has been from the beginning, is a reference to our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a couple of verses we ought to go to in order to substantiate the emphasis on eternality in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go first to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Well-known prophecy related to the first advent. The sign of the Messiah. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, comma, Counselor. I, there's no punctuation in the original Hebrew or in the original Greek. In fact, in many of the what's called uncial documents in the, of the Greek text, all the letters are capital. No word spacing. 
no periods, no commas, no quotation marks, no colons, semicolons. All that is done through functions of the syntax and grammar. Sometimes it's open to interpretation. Their aspects are the similar aspects are true in Hebrew. His name will be called Wonderful. We just saw an example of this in uh, Judges chapter 14 or 15, 14, when we were getting into, uh, or it was Judges 13, the beginning of Samson, that when the angel of the Lord appeared to Samson's parents and announced the birth of Samson as a Nazarite, remember Samson's father said, well, tell me your name. And the angel of the Lord said, I won't tell you my name. It is wonderful. Same word that we have here. So this is a title of deity. He's called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Then it's a bad translation. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now remember, this is talking about the second person of the Trinity who will become incarnate through the virgin conception and birth and be born at Bethlehem. That is God the Son. You don't call God the Son Eternal Father. The Son is not the Father. They're not the same person. They are, they are distinct persons. Remember, in the Trinity, God has one essence, and He exists in three persons. The emphasis in the Hebrew is Father of Eternity. Father of Eternity. And that is a Hebrew idiom, meaning that He has the attribute of eternality. He has the attribute of eternality. That God has several different attributes. They are, He is sovereign, that is, He is the ruler of the universe and overrides his, overrules His creation. He is righteous. He is the, his righteousness is the absolute standard of His integrity. His righteousness is absolute perfection. He is just, or justice. He is love and He is eternal life. That is the essence of God. So when you say that Jesus, this incarnate child, is going to be eternal, right then you have a, 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 a contradiction, it appears, in the text. A child will be born. What is birth? Birth is a beginning. There is this child that will have a beginning, yet his essential character is eternal. He's eternal. So the Jews could go to Isaiah 9, 6 if they wanted to, and realize that the Messiah that they were expecting would be God. Yet, sadly, they haven't done that. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. So that's our first verse emphasizing the eternality of Jesus Christ. Let's turn to another verse, back to the New Testament, to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, John chapter 1. And here we have a Greek phrase that is similar but yet different from the one we have over in 1 John. We'll put this up on the overhead. The phrase we had in 1 John is the preposition apo, A-P-O, plus the noun arche, A-R-C-H-E. And there, that's a because you don't run the two vowels together, that's dropped. You have a contraction. It's just op arche in 1 John chapter 2. Here in John 1, 1, you have the preposition in plus arche, E-N. Notice there's not a definite article there, and that's because in Greek, first of all, the noun has an inherent definiteness to it. Therefore, you do not have to have an article in Greek to have a noun that's definite. British English is that way sometimes. For example, you will hear people, even Canadians, say, I'm going to hospital. I'm going to university. The Americans will put a definite article in there. I'm going to the hospital. I'm going to the university. But British English recognizes that there are certain nouns that are inherently definite. Same thing in Greek. The other thing, the other rule that applies by way of grammar is that if you do have, an, if there were to be an article present here, 
then once you put a preposition with it, the article automatically drops out. There, I've gone through this study, and there's not one example that I can find of a preposition plus an article plus noun. You always, the article is always replaced with a preposition, so that means that this is still a definite word, beginning. It should be translated in the beginning as it is at the beginning of John 1.1. Now, John, uh, 1 John 2.13 talks about this individual, the Lord Jesus Christ, as being or existing from... The beginning, the one who was from, that is the ultimate source of the beginning, indicating eternality again. Here in John 1 1, we're told in the beginning. Now, the beginning here in John 1 1 is the beginning of creation. It would take us back to the first word in Genesis 1 1, which is Habereshit in the Hebrew, and it is the beginning of the space time universe. God is eternal, but the universe is not. Matter is not eternal. Uh, space is not eternal. God created space. He created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1.1, the Hashemayim Baharetz. The heavens and the earth is the Hebrew way of speaking of the whole universe. So God created, as it were, a box, just a box of space that he just hung out there. And so there are limits to the universe. The universe is not eternal. Now, you'll hear that in science. The universe just goes on and on and on. There's no end to it. But there is. It is a finite creation of God. And when God created that, and that's the reference in Genesis 1.1, at the time he created that, the Word, this is a title for Jesus Christ, the Logos, already was in existence. We have the imperfect active indicative of the verb ami, which means he was continuing in eternity past to be in existence. That's the thrust of the imperfect tense in the Greek. Uh, at the beginning, he already was, I mean, in the beginning, the Word already was in existence, and the Word was face to face with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. You can't find a stronger way of stating the eternality of Jesus Christ than in John 1 1 and 1 2. So the reference here is he's, uh, John is writing to the fathers, the mature believers, because you have come to know him, Jesus Christ, who has been from the beginning. And this is the doctrine of, the, of occupation with Christ. That's the terminology that we use. We'll explain the doctrine and the terminology in just a minute. But for a couple of, I want to go to a couple of central passages that we need to keep in mind when we want to understand this, this uh, concept. So let's start by turning to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Now the context of Hebrews is very similar to James. He's dealing with primarily Jewish believers who are dealing and facing a lot of opposition, adversity, persecution. And so he is encouraging them. And up to this point, there's been an encouragement basically not to give up on your Christianity and go back to Judaism so there's no opposition. Now he's saying you need to keep going forward and endure whatever suffering, adversity you have to face because that's the only way to advance to spiritual maturity. And he's going to give the motivation here. Verse 11, or chapter 11, rather, detailed Old Testament heroes who did not uh, give up despite opposition. That's what the therefore refers to, all the events in chapter 11. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, that is, all these Old Testament heroes who advanced to spiritual maturity, so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. So the mandate here, the challenge, is to get our priorities straight, to re figure out what it is in our life that distracts us from applying doctrine. 
distracts us from learning doctrine, distracts us from listening to a tape, distracts us from getting to Bible class. We have to figure out what our priorities are and then make decisions about what we're going to do and not do in life based on that. This isn't something that's legalistic. Some people get that idea. It's not something that's legalistic. It's a recognition of what are your goals in life. And as we advance in spiritual life, eventually we get to a point where we realize, or hopefully you get to a point where you realize that your goal in life is to glorify God, is to fulfill God's plan and purposes for your life. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. Ultimately, as a creature of God, my job here is to serve God in the angelic conflict and to fulfill God's plan for my life. Now, that means that there are a lot of fun, wonderful, exciting, pleasurable things to do in this life. But it's not that they're wrong. It's that if I get involved with them, it will distract me from what I need to do in terms of my ministry, in terms of God's plan for my life. So, and that plan starts with learning doctrine. So that means I have to make decisions whether or not I'm going to watch TV or study the Word. And that comes down to making decisions when you come home after you've worked hard all week, whether or not you're going to make it to Bible class or do something else. So we're challenged to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. So it's not just non-moral or non spiritual issues, but also sin, which also distracts us from pursuing the ultimate goal of spiritual maturity. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's the challenge, is to endure despite opposition. Now, how do we do that? Ultimately, it's going to be through reaching this stage in the spiritual life of occupation with Christ. To reaching this point, he's, the writer of Hebrews is saying... We have to put our focus on Jesus Christ. He is the the model for how we face adversity. Nobody faced more adversity, more opposition, more rejection, more persecution in this life than the Lord Jesus Christ. And He did it in His humanity through the filling of God the Holy Spirit. And He was a model for us, and He set the pattern and the precedent for the spiritual life of the church age. So we have to come to understand who he is, what, what he went through, what he went in his life, what he went through on the cross, because that is our standard. We are to fix our eyes, put our focus on Jesus, the originator and the completer of our doctrine, who for the joy set before him. See, that brings in there are three things we ought to notice here that relate also to James. The first is the idea of putting our focus. We have to know something. James says, puts it this way, Count it all joy, my brethren, because you know that the testing of your faith, you know something. The testing of your faith, we see that Jesus was tested. In, I've got to fix this new computer, it's too sensitive. Jesus faced something here. Uh, he faced the suffering and adversity at the cross. Why? For the joy set before him. See, the joy is ahead of him. That's why I put sharing the happiness of Christ or the joy, inner happiness, the joy of Christ at the end. Because it's the goal. It's the focus. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He put up with the rejection. He put up with the opposition. He went through more physical torment and pain than any of us will ever go through. I don't care what kind of horrible health problems any of us might have. They're nothing compared with the pain that the Lord went through before He went to the cross. Not only did He go through the physical pain, but He also went through the cultural shame that's associated with the kind of death that He went through. In His humanity, Jesus Christ was just as much influenced by His culture as you and I are. Not in a negative way because he didn't sin, but he's still affected by his culture. And it is, as a human, in his humanity, it was a shameful way to be treated and to die. So he did not consider that to be something to discourage him from fulfilling God's plan for his life. So he endured the cross, all of the physical suffering. The shame also applies to the degradation that he endured as perfect righteousness 
bearing our sin in His body on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that He who knew no sin was made sin for us. In His perfect righteousness, He had all of our sins imputed to Him. That is shame for Him. Because He is perfect deity, and yet He bore our sins on the cross. So He endured the cross, despised the shame of bearing our sin, and then sat down, indicating completion of the work at the right hand of the throne of God. But the point is that what enables us to face the adversity, the problems, the difficulties, the heartaches of life, is to put our focus on what Jesus did. He was the pioneer. He's the one who blazed the trail. He's the one who set the precedent. And when we come to understand all of the dynamics that took place on the cross, then we begin to understand what it means to fix our eyes on Jesus. He is the pattern, and He is the one uh, one we follow. And we go from there to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Excuse me. I'm way off. 2 Peter chapter 1. I mean, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 8. Peter says, and though you have not seen him, he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the last two words of the previous verse are Jesus Christ, and that's the reference for the pronoun. And though you have not seen him, you love him. See, this is a contrast. Peter learned this in the episode with Thomas right before the ascension of our Lord, after the resurrection. Jesus had appeared to the other disciples. They saw saw him and they believed in him, believed in the resurrection. But then Thomas wasn't there. Thomas came along later and they all told him that they had seen the resurrected Lord. He didn't believe it. That's why we talk about doubting Thomas. He did not believe it. He was skeptical. And then the Lord appeared to him and said, Well, come on, Thomas. You doubted me. You doubted the resurrection. Put your hands here. Feel the nail print. Feel the wound in my side. Come on now. You... you and, and, the Lord, and Thomas fell down and said, My Lord and my God. At that point, Jesus said, Blessed are they who believe, having not seen. See, it's one thing to believe like Thomas did because he saw the historical evidence of Jesus Christ right before his eyes. But Jesus said it is greater to believe on the testimony of others as opposed to having that personal eyewitness empirical data before you uh, at the time. So, we love Him, not we haven't seen Him. We did not walk with Him as John and Peter did. We did, were not personal witnesses of the resurrection. And so Peter says, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. It takes more to love someone you don't have empirical contact with. We only come to know that person because we, ha- we read about Him. I am amazed at people who develop relationships and can uh, and fall in love with someone and have a, a solid, healthy, long-term marriage, and they got to know each other initially through correspondence. Now, that's a lost art. It's not like the Internet, people confusing the return to email with the old correspondence. You read love letters that people wrote to one another a hundred years ago when they had an education where they knew how to write and they had some content to talk about. And they came to really know each other through their correspondence. Recently, I've been reading through a uh, recent biography of uh, George Patton. George Patton just bled ink, I think. I, I've never run across quite anyone quite like him. He wrote his wife every single day. He wrote in his diary every day of just voluminous correspondence. And he had met uh, the lady who would be his wife, Beatrice, when um, I think it was before he went to uh, Virginia Military Institute. He went there for a year before he went to West Point. 
And all through those years, and she is not, of course, anywhere near him. She's from a family in Boston, and he had originally met her when she was visiting friends in Southern California. He was from an area in in Pasadena. And so he began the relationship. He had met her, but they corresponded. They didn't even have telephone to get onto, just all through correspondence. Yet that's how he came to, they came to know each other and to fall in love with each other. Not by spending time together, going out on dates together, and spending all that time in one-on-one contact. It was through, through letters. And I think there's something remarkable about that. To come to know, we know our Lord Jesus Christ only through what the Scriptures tell us. And Peter praises that. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now, the interesting thing about the first epistle of Peter is that the focus is on how to face adversity and suffering. And one of the first things he focuses their thinking on at the beginning of the epistle is Jesus Christ and their love for him because they have come to know him even though they did not have personal acquaintance with him. So it takes more to love someone we do not have a relationship with. Then another verse to go to is John 14:15 where Jesus said, "If you love me, you will keep my commandments." So once again we see an emphasis on maturity here. The one who loves Jesus is the one who consistently keeps the commandments. To keep his commandments, you have to what? You have to know his commandments. We have to be intimately aware of all of the mandates and protocols for the spiritual life in the New Testament. And we have to be consistently applying them. So love is not a feeling. Love is not an emotion. Love has to do with, has an objective measure. And love has to do with our understanding of divine precepts and our application in our life. So that's what it means to have occupation with Christ. It means to make Jesus Christ a role model for our life and to focus on his person and work and character as, the, as a model for how we get through any difficulty or hardship in our life. We use the word occupation. To occupy means to be completely absorbed with something, to have our thinking completely uh, captured by something, to concentrate or to think. So we are to concentrate on Jesus, and he is the focus for our spiritual life. So John comes along and says that we are, I've written to you fathers because you, have, you know him who has been from the beginning. And then he goes on to talk to the young men, and we will begin that next time and begin to develop uh, what John teaches the adolescent believer. I think the way I'm going to approach this is take the young men in the middle of 13, and the next time we'll look at everything he says to the young men in verses 14c and following, and then we'll come back and deal with the children all together. So we'll cover that next time. But remember, the focus is on Jesus Christ because He is the one who paid the penalty for our sins. He endured that on the cross. And He paid the penalty for every single sin so that we can have a salvation that is not based at all on anything we do, but is based completely on who He is and what He did on the cross. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for this time that we have to focus on your word and to be reminded that we are to concentrate, we're to think, we're to focus on Jesus Christ. He is the one who established uh, the precedent for the spiritual life in the church age. He lived his life completely in dependence on God the Holy Spirit, just as we are to continuously walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. And on the same, in the same way that Jesus faced and overcome, overcame the adversity, the suffering, the hardships that he encountered, We, too, have those same resources. We have the Holy Spirit and the same spiritual assets that He pioneered for us. So, Father, we pray that You would challenge us to keep our focus on Him and to realize how much we need to come to learn about Him and doctrine, realizing that all of Scripture is called the thinking, the mind of Christ. So it's not just a matter of understanding the Gospels, but a matter of understanding everything in the New Testament. Now, Father, we pray that 
there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation or uncertain about eternal life, that right now they can make that sure and certain. It's not a matter of moral reformation. It's not a matter of uh, ritual or church attendance or religious activity. It's simply a matter of putting your faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, recognizing that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every sin so that sin is not the issue. It's simply accepting the free gift of God's payment for your sin. Father, we pray that you would challenge us these things and that the Holy Spirit would help us to apply them consistently. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.